0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 26th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Apologies to our Russian-speaking listeners for the language. That's what it sounds like when Russia seizes three Ukrainian naval craft. Ukraine ponders martial law. My guests Samira Shackle and Jeffrey Howard will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the arrival at the US border of the caravan and its revival in Donald Trump's anti-immigration narrative, the looming G20 summit in Buenos Aires, and Hong Kong becomes the latest place faced with a tourist attraction which is too popular. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Samira Shackle, a freelance journalist writing for The New Statesman, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, Deutsche Welle and Monocle, among others, and Jeffrey Howard, lecturer in political theory at University College London. Welcome both. And we will start with that procession of a few hundred foot sore Central Americans, which acquired notoriety a few weeks back as the caravan, a thing which in the days before the United States recent midterm elections was sold as an existential threat unrivaled since Pearl Harbour and then swiftly forgotten about the day after the vote, almost as if the whole thing had been a shameless beat-up. Anyway, certain of the caravan have now reached the US-Mexico border and attempted to cross it. 42 have been arrested on the American side, many others deterred with tear gas. Mexico has promised to deport them whence they came. Um, Jeffrey, what have you made of the US response? Uh, The visuals are not... Uh, necessarily uh, an edifying spectacle, as, as launching tear gas and other riot control measures uh, at children generally isn't. Um, but Is it the overreaction it's being depicted as?
1: Well, the visuals really are a Rorschach test for American politics, because liberals see the videos and they see horror. They see human rights violations. They see women and children being fired upon with um, what one commentator described as chemical weapons, right? If this was happening in a foreign country. Well, that's technically the case, but it's a bit of a stretch, possibly. Indeed. Whereas for conservatives, for Fox News, they see people rushing the border. They see exactly what the president has told them to fear, people coming into the country illegally. Um, The president uh, gave the order to permit the use of lethal ammunition. Apparently, uh, General Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff and Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, tried to argue him out of that. But the hard right aide, Stephen Miller, pressured him into it. And, And the only thing I can conclude from that is that Trump's looking for a provocation here. He actually is potentially hoping that something goes down so he can say, see, I told you these people are dangerous.
0: Uh, Samira, is it possible that everybody is both right and wrong here? It does seem to be the case that some of the would-be immigrants have rushed the border and tried to climb the fence and even uh, pelted uh, border security with rocks uh, and so forth, to which... Uh, the security officials sta- stationed along the border have responded. Is there actually anything anyone could really have done differently?
2: Uh, I think they didn't have to tear gas the kids, probably. Um, on on balance, uh, I think you know. It's, obviously, this is a much more coordinated. You some sort of communist. You know, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. Just a bleeding heart over here, but probably tear gassing very small children and babies is a bit bit much for anyone, and you can have a strong border without it. But I think. Um, although this is you know the level of coordination in the caravan is um uh, perhaps something new people illegally crossing the border is not something new and you know it's it, it, of, of course it, it's reached a kind of pressure point and there's people storming across the border and there's huge amount of pressure on those border towns in mexico where thousands of people are amassing and and needing shelter and so on so there's kind of pressure building on all sides um But I think it's quite hard to get away from... I think one of you mentioned the optics earlier. It's quite hard to get away from the the kind of disproportionality in this, I think. You do have these kind of, um, sure, in big numbers, but pretty desperate people. Lots of um, women and kids in there. Uh, kind of walking on foot uh, very very little money and kind of fleeing quite a lot of hardship whether that's economic hardship or kind of incredible levels of violence in Honduras whatever but the kind of disproportionality between that and the most powerful country in the world sending uh, basically as many soldiers as um, migrants in the caravan as far as I can gather it's about 5,000 soldiers and I think about 5,000 migrants at least in Tijuana I'm not sure if it's more um, including other border towns so that that kind of optic of the the kind of um that you know and perhaps i'm revealing which side of the rossack test that jeffrey mentioned <laughs> that, that i would be on but I, I do think that that's quite hard to get away from especially when taken in conjunction with the other uh, other kind of anti-migrant policies that we've seen and sure maybe shooting um shooting some unarmed uh, families dead at the border might put people off coming but you know the, it still isn't something that a country that purports to be the world's greatest democracy should be doing nor was you know separating kids from their families indefinitely because they've entered illegally and claimed asylum uh,
0: It is not Jeffrey really what you might think of as shining city on the hill variety behaviour but but it is emblematic of what is becoming a question not just for the United States but for the wider world for Europe and indeed Uh, my own home country of australia both of which have taken measures of varying degrees of harshness uh, often advancing the rationale you're it's the you're familiar with the argument it's the road to hell paved with good good intentions if we allow people to come in if we allow this to become a possible path to residency or citizenship then more and more people will just keep on coming is there anything leaving aside The president who is giving these instructions, who, as he very often does, is sort of making it all about him, is there actually anything to that argument? I mean,
1: empirically, it might be true that you deter some people by imposing extremely excessive force or extremely harsh force, but that just raises the question of whether that's a sufficient justification, right? So it, it, it may have been true. It doesn't look like it's been true, but it may have been true that separating children from their parents, the news of that happening somehow made it back to Honduras and deterred more people from coming. But even if that empirically held, it wouldn't justify separating kids from their parents, just as... Even if it were true that shooting kids dead at the border um, would successfully deter parents from bringing their kids to the U.S.-Mexico border, it would still violate um, international humanitarian law um, because there is a necessity condition on the use of force. And if it's not necessary to use this level of force, then it is illegal, not to mention immoral. So. I'm convinced that even if there is some legs to stand on for the empirical argument, that, that doesn't settle the moral issue at all.
0: Uh, Samira, is this one of those things where politicians and indeed the people who vote for them could possibly do worse and admit to themselves that the reality is there isn't actually a a, a clean, decisive, complete solution to this? This is always going to be a thing that has to be managed.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I, But I, I think um, that probably one of the best ways of dealing with this as you said people aren't going to stop wanting to migrate uh, from poorer countries or or more dangerous countries to wealthier or more stable ones it's that's just a kind of condition of the world we live in and I think by far the best thing that politicians could do would be to accept that fact and to varying extents you know obviously it's going to vary around the world but have uh, more effective legal ways in in process by which people can come and move to those countries and and do it legally because as you know it is a kind of um i don't think people a Unless it's a pretty desperate situation, I don't think the vast majority of people would choose to kind of walk halfway across a continent and take their chances, um, knowing that it's a pretty strict um, border and that the climate is worsening and worsening. So I think there has to be some kind of recognition of that. And, you know, to to, you mentioned Europe there. It's the same thing if you look at the, the kind of fortification of the borders of Europe. If you had... Um, means by which people could come in a, in a safer and more legal route, I'm sure you wouldn't have people amassing to the same extent in Greece and Italy.
0: Okay, well let's move on now. In a little less than four days, the leaders of the G20 Group of Nations will meet for a summit in Buenos Aires, capital of a country which at present serves as a demonstration model of how not to operate a developed economy with inflation running at circa 45% and interest rates at 60 Among the scheduled highlights are a meeting between US President Donald Trump, assuming it isn't raining or anything, and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping, who will presently be wondering when best to insert into the conversation today's news that General Motors is closing three plants and laying off 8,000 staff, having lost, by its own estimates, a billion dollars due to Trump's tariffs on imported steel, part of his trade war with China. Um, Jeffrey, how
1: excited are you for the G20? Oh, very excited. Very That's excited. That's what we like to hear. Yes. I mean, I don't think there's any prospects of um, them coming a, an agreement over the trade war. I think it plays pretty well domestically for Trump back home. Does it um, still
0: play well for
1: him domestically if, <laughs> if General Motors are laying off 8,000 people and shutting three factories? Yeah. Well, I think that remains to be seen. I mean, I, I hope it doesn't play well um, domestically. I hope that people realize that I there mean, are You'd certain... assume it's
0: not going to play well with those 8,000 people about to lose their it jobs. It won't play well
1: with, with those 8,000 people, but that may well be offset by the number of people who look at him and say, gosh, he's being tough on China. He's standing up for us. Now, of course, the other way to have been tough on China was to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right, which would have enabled um, the United States economy to be embedded throughout Asia in a way that made it a, a serious competitor to China, um, to pursue various lawsuits um, in the WTO against um, admittedly nefarious uh, and unfair Chinese trade practices. Um, that would, you could imagine, a Clinton administration pursuing precisely those policies. Um, but this is Trump's way of being tough on China. And of course, it's a it's an approach to being tough on China. China that, as you say, is having huge costs at home. Now, there's costs in China, too. The manufacturing sector in China has slowed down. Um, but trade wars are just in, in nobody's interest. Uh, Xi Jinping, of course, is not
0: inconvenienced by anything like having to run for re-election at any point. Um, Samira, how straight a face do you think you'll be, you will be will be able to keep? <laughs>
2: <coughs> uh, I mean... It's hard to say, really. But I think I'd agree with Jeffrey that there's, it doesn't look that likely that there's going to be some great resolution here. Um, uh, you know, the, the, all the kind of speculative reports looking ahead to the G20 say "Oh, the, the, the eyes will really be on the sidelines. That's where the real story will be happening in this this meeting between Trump and President Xi. But I, I think um, in terms of a kind of meaningful agreement, it, it's, I don't see what would happen to make this kind of tit-for-tat that we've seen end.
0: Uh, Jeffrey, is Trump now a diminished figure on the world stage following the, the kicking the Republicans got in those midterms? Will, will that have encouraged his fellow summiteers to be thinking, look, we only have to put up with this guy for another couple of years and then and then hopefully they'll elect somebody relatively normal and life will
1: become somewhat less fraught? Yeah, in the same way that when Theresa May called the snap election and she did so poorly, um, it weakened her standing at the international um, or the European European negotiating table. Similarly, I think seeing uh, the Republican Party lose the House of Representatives sends a very clear signal that, gosh, ooh, this guy's not going to be around forever. Um, and maybe we can wait him out. Maybe the United States hasn't turned a sharp quarter into Trumpism. Maybe he'll lose the next presidential election um, if he's if he's there at all to run. And so I, I think it's absolutely true that that he's he's freshly weakened. That said, he's still the President of the United States, and so he still has an enormous amount of power and. Certainly Certainly, uh, people want to be nice to him in the meantime. I mean, we heard the story of Theresa May calling him the other morning uh, to congratulate him on the Republicans keeping the Senate and him chewing her, her off and getting really angry and upset with her on the phone. So I think there'll be plenty of that routine obsequiousness, um, but alongside it, an awareness that this guy's not going to be around forever.
0: I mean, Samira, the, the dynamics are actually kind of interesting because there is, of course, Trump, who is as we've just been discussed, a diminished figure. Theresa May, who is obviously a diminished, if not an embattled or indeed outright beleaguered one. And Angela Merkel, who has started preparing the ground for her exit. Uh, That being the case, as you go to the G20 summit and look at this weirdly addictive little wheel of portraits that enable you to see if you can name that leader, um, who do strike you as the ones who are sort of going in the other direction, who are becoming more and more of a force on the world stage?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually. And just, just before to getting onto that, I think it's also um, in terms of Trump and his um, diminished position, I think that's true to an extent, but I think there is also, you know, the, the fact that the US is so powerful. Um, I think that, 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 that something I was reading um, earlier this week was saying that um, uh, the, the G20 summit was expected to kind of downgrade lots of its expectations on things like climate change and trade. So they're expected to drop their... Uh, provision uh, to to avoid protectionism, for instance, and that's partly aimed at keeping Trump on and America on side and, and kind of lowering expectations on climate change. So I think there obviously is still a huge amount of power that carries, um, you know, that, that whatever happened in the midterm elections, there's still a huge amount of power with that office. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting time, and it's that sense, um, you know, the, the current global political moment we're in, I think, leaves, um, you know, that... Um, end-of-history thesis looking uh, ever more ridiculous, the kind of um, apparently everlasting liberal world order it, pretty look, shaky. It, it
0: sold Francis Fukuyama yeah. a lot of books at the time. I'm yeah. sure he doesn't regret it that yeah. much. <laughs> or oh, does he? Um, You do have to wonder. Uh, Jeffrey. again, going around the the wheel of leaders here, um, it insists that Saudi Arabia will be represented by, in fact, King Salman uh, bin Abdulaziz and not uh, his uh, his tempestuous heir. Um, How big a question or a thing is that likely to be? This will be the first time out in large-scale world leader company for the Saudis uh, since the Jamal Khashoggi affair. Again, a, a similar question about them. Are they diminished by it, or are people basically
1: just thinking Saudi's going to saud? Saudi's going to saud. I, I, I fear that this thing is just going to go away, and the Washington Post can keep that banner on the top of its page as long as it likes. I don't even know if it's still there talking about how um, Saudi Arabia hasn't been held accountable yet for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But it looks like the Trump strategy, which is you know, he released that statement from the White House the other day, laden with exclamation points, talking about what a dangerous world it is and how, you know, we don't have a lot of friends in the Middle East, so we have to make friends with Saudi Arabia, even though they might have been up to all sorts of trouble. Um, I think that's the, the strategy, and I, I don't see many people on the world stage um, who have it as one of their high priorities to challenge Saudi Arabia. Um, I mean, you could imagine another world in which the U.S.-Iran deal, the, well, the, the, plur- the multilateral Iran deal. Iran deal was still going really, really strong, in which there was this, this pivot to empowering Iran, over-empowering Saudi Arabia, and that would have changed the, the positioning on the world stage. But alas, that's that's not the world we're in. And so I think Saudi Arabia is going to carry on.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short break now on that happy thought. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Samira Shackle and Jeffrey Howard. Coming up next, the reason why Vladimir Putin might not be going to Argentina after all. <laughs>
3: The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet-setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tsushima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey. When you're not too busy looking out the window, spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
0: You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Samira Shackle and Jeffrey Howard. And let's look now at Ukraine, the parliament of which is debating the introduction of martial law. This follows the seizure of three of its naval vessels and 23 members of their crews by Russia. The three craft were sailing off the coast of Crimea, which, despite the de facto reality, remains de jure Ukrainian territory. Russian ships opened fire, injuring several Ukrainians, and at least one of the Ukrainian craft was rammed. Ukraine claimed it had informed russia in advance of the ship's course from odessa to Mariupol in the sea of azov russia as it so often does denies everything um jeffrey does this strike you as seeming like a something that was ordered from on high or like people actually there on the ground at the scene got a little bit carried away as sometimes happens
1: it could have been the latter. It could have been a kind of complex relationship between the two where the, the tone was set from on high to, that, such that those at the bottom knew that, that the people giving their orders would tolerate this and wouldn't be too upset by it. Um, so I don't think this needs to have come from Putin for it to implicate Putin in the sense of him creating a, a climate um, in which low-level Russian troops thought that it would be appropriate. And of course, Ukraine has responded um, with the very incendiary language saying that Russia deliberately fired to kill, saying that this was an act of aggression and so things are really, really hot right now. And it's, uh, it's not good. Um, Ukraine has used that
0: language. That is true, Samira. But uh, President Petro Poroshenko has also been keen to make it clear uh, that this discussion of martial law is, and I quote, not a declaration of war. Ukraine does not plan to fight anyone. So in that case, I'm a bit lost as the necessity for martial law.
2: Yeah, so was I. I'm not sure what it would achieve, really, um, especially since this um, this escalation. Uh, yeah, it was the first escalation, kind of direct escalation between the two militaries, Russian and Ukrainian, that for, for years. Um, but it actually wasn't an escalation in the, the conflict that the Ukrainian army is fighting in the east with the Russian-backed separatists, um, which might be more of a reason to introduce martial law because that's something happening within Ukraine's borders, if that makes sense. So it's quite hard to see... Exactly what the logic is. Um, I think that there's some concern um, in Ukraine that that the introduction of martial law might be used to delay or postpone elections um, next year, which would benefit Poroshenko, of course, uh, and also um, uh, perhaps draw up his own position because he's been plunging in the polls.
0: Uh, there is that possibility. Uh, Jeffrey, as far as it's possible to tell from where you're sitting, does this escalation actually work for any of the parties to it? Because I can't really see where anybody's going with this.
1: Well, I, I would be interested to see if Ukraine releases proof that they did alert Russia um, in advance. So, I mean, if you look at the map, I mean, you have to go through this strait if you're along the, the southeastern coast of well, Ukraine. Well, Ukraine could
0: also argue that it is Ukrainian territorial. waters. Well, they can sa- sail where they damn
1: well please. in. in Indeed, but you know it's, it's the only way for that bit of Ukraine to get out to the Black Sea, and especially since they alerted Russia in advance. I mean, this would be truly outrageous if if Ukraine alerted Russia in advance and they nevertheless fired on them. And so I think it'll it'll only strengthen Ukraine's hand on the world stage if they're able to to furnish that that kind of evidence. That said, the continued support um, of Russia from uh, I hasten to call it support by the Trump administration, but certainly not antagonism from the Trump administration, has created a, a global climate um, that isn't as favorable to u- Ukraine um, as as could have been the case. And so I, I think this could play well for Ukraine, but I, 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 Russia continues to wrong others with impunity. And I, I don't see that coming to an end anytime soon.
0: I mean, is it possible following on from that thought, Samira, that this is just and it wouldn't be the first an, an exercise in uh, limit pushing by Russia, if you will, to see like, well, let's see if we can get away with this. Let's see if anybody actually bites. Um, and that will tell us a great deal.
2: Yeah, it might well be. Um, And of course, I think um, Russia will be very aware of the fact that, um, you know, it's all very well for NATO to voice support of Ukraine and be providing support in terms of training and so on. But it's quite another thing for them to ramp up that support and what that support might look like because... um, I don't think NATO has any appetite to provoke Russia into a full-scale war. Let's not forget this whole thing started in 2014 with a kind of controversy about Ukraine's um, increasingly close relationship with the EU and NATO. So I think um, Putin's administration is acutely aware that it's quite difficult for those kind of uh, NATO sort of broad-stroke Western um, countries to negotiate exactly how best to support Ukraine's territorial integrity without inflaming the situation further. And so it might well be... An element of limit pushing and just seeing how far can we go with this Um, and because also if you look at um, you know the annexation of Crimea nothing really has happened I mean of course there's there's economic sanctions but that's not made Russia reverse their position so it's not um, you know if, if, if Europe or the EU wanted to impose further sanctions on Russia sure but you know they don't really seem to be the Putin administration doesn't seem that bothered about that now
0: Uh, Jeffrey, is there there an American response which might cause Russia to perhaps, well, certainly to hand back the Ukrainian service personnel it holds and perhaps to cease blocking the Straits of Kerch, which it
1: apparently is still doing? quite possibly, although even if it, if it did hand back the, the soldiers, and I suspect it will do in, in, in time, um, you know, it, I think it would have gotten that piece of information, right? It's waiting now to see how the international community responds. Um, and insofar as there isn't uh, an, up, an uproar, or insofar as the uproar is only in words but not in action, then Putin will have learned a valuable piece of information. Uh, I've, I've been reading the, the Future's History, Masha Gessen's book on Russia, and I think to, to your question about whether there's um, a cost to this, there's certainly isn't a cost in terms of ger- Russia's internal domestic politics it's not like there's a vibrant internal discussion within Russia about Russian-Ukrainian relations there's just the the official narrative
0: Okay, well, finally tonight to the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge opened last month. It is an engineering marvel, a 55 kilometre span, nine years in the building, $20 billion in the spending. Unsurprisingly, a great many people have been keen to have a go on it. Equally predictably, these numbers have caused a measure of irritation to the residents of the districts near the entry and exit points. As a consequence, authorities in China have taken steps to regulate the size of the tour groups. Samira, so does it strike you that this is starting to become more of a thing, not just in Hong Kong, but around the world, very touristed places deciding that they're possibly very touristed enough?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there have been various uh, movements around the world, haven't there? There was in, um, in Spain, some anti-tourist protests um I can't remember exactly where it was, but protests basically saying refugees are welcome, but tourists should go away. Um, and in Venice, of course, um, there's been a bit of outrage, particularly about cruise ships and um, massive numbers of people coming in and uh, overwhelming the place and behaving loutishly. Uh, so yeah, I think I think it does seem to be. I and mean, I guess as as travel gets easier and so on, and, and destination places are quite small. Hong Kong's pretty constricted, uh, and there were concerns even before the bridge was the bridge was built from Hong Kong's residents that it was going to uh, lead to an overwhelming number of tourists from mainland China which it has predictably so I think it could have been foreseen. And
0: Jeffrey, is mm. this is this becoming more of a thing largely because more Chinese people or a larger number larger percentage of Chinese people are traveling which is of course not to say that Chinese people are any better or worse tourists than anybody else it's just that there's so very
1: many of them. Yeah absolutely and as, as parts of China get richer all over the country. People are traveling much more, and the the rail system in China has developed incredibly in the past 10 years, and so it's pretty easy now to get across that, that enormous country. And so you do have a lot of Chinese tourists and other tourists, of course, visiting Hong Kong. Um, is there a, a reason of principle to say that... Um, areas that receive lots of tourists don't have the right to impose reasonable restrictions to regulate that? No, of course. I, I think it's perfectly sensible to say, look, if you have unlimited access um, without any regulation to these sites, the very value of these sites will be cheapened, right? So if if St. Peter's Square, is that what it is? What is St. Mark right Mark's Square? Ven- right In Right in Venice. If, if, it's, if it's cheek by jowl and you can't stand back and take a view of the place, then you're not going to enjoy it as much. So even the tourists have an interest in there being some measure of regulation um, I do remember having a professor at Oxford that thought we should they should limit the number of tourists that got into Oxford during the week because <laughs> you know the number of them coming through the colleges was could be could be somewhat overwhelming. Um, I'm not sure Oxford has quite hit the threshold, but it looks like Hong Kong might have. Um, and I think it's it's perfectly reasonable to, to impose restrictions, require people to buy tickets. Um, I, I don't think there's anything to to worry too much about there. Samira, do you think that the
0: market cannot be trusted to sort this out if it gets to the point? Because it, it is one of the, the great ironies of tourism that the last thing any tourist wants to see when they go to a place is other bloody tourists. So if if it becomes perceived that a given place is completely overrun, might people just stop going to it and that will even out the numbers accordingly?
2: Mm, I don't know if that can really be trusted. So if you look at somewhere like Barcelona, which is a place where there have been um, you know protests or... Uh, people raising questions about the volume of tourists. That's been, um, you know, a really hectic tourist destination for years and years. Ditto Venice. It just seems to be getting fuller and fuller. So while you might have a kind of slight drop off, I think if you're not having it, if, these pla- if certain places do continue to be um, mass destinations, you know, it might put off uh, a certain demographic of tourists. But I don't think it's necessarily going to put off the whole the whole amount of them because there's still the question of accessibility and the sights to see and all those things that are attracting uh, th- those big numbers of people.
0: Well, cities could just do things like London has done with Leicester Square and Covent Garden and New York has done with Times Square where you just build things that only the tourists go to and no locals ever go within a mile of them. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's a great idea. <laughs> it right?
2: has um, to be big enough, though. This is a big enough place. Uh, yeah.
0: that, that, that is yeah. true. Is, is there anywhere, given that yeah, we M&M have...
2: M&M World in Leicester Square, what's that about? That's
0: right. uh, unfortunately, we've only got about another 20 yeah. seconds and <laughs> I, I don't think that is nearly enough to get fully into what M&M World is about. It's a fair question. I've walked past it and that was. Exa- it's not even a thing. It's because it's in
1: Times Square. I think there's yeah. this effort to try to well, make M&M something look it, like Times Square. Is, is there an Eminem World in Times Square? Yeah. See, that,
0: that still, I've been in that one. I've been in the left it, one. You've been in one of them. You've got five seconds, Jeffrey. Seriously, <laughs> what is Eminem World all about? Oh, and please don't just say Eminem's. Eminem's. You've been in one, you've been in the all. <laughs> <sighs> that does bring us to the end of today's show. Seriously, if anyone does have any idea what. Eminem world is even all about do get in touch i've become suddenly fascinated uh, samira shackle and jeffrey howard thanks both very much for joining us not so fascinated that i'm actually going to go there obviously uh, today's show was produced by fernando augusto pacheco researched by gabrielle della santi and nick moniz our studio manager was david stevens music next at 1900 it's the monocle culture show i'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200 midori house returns at 1800 tomorrow london time i'm andrew muller thank you for listening